Welcome to the Kelowna Real Estate Podcast with your host, award-winning realtor, Matt Glenn, and top producing mortgage broker, Taylor Atkinson. Professionals in the industry, enthusiastic entrepreneurs, and successful investors. When it comes to real estate, we're all in. Hi again, everybody. Man, we are stoked today. We got Brendan Ogmanson on, the chief economist at BCREA, and Taylor and I just pepper him with questions. We actually don't stop asking. It's been an awesome episode. Yeah, super fortunate that he was able to open up his schedule. Our listener base is growing and we're getting some better guests, but yeah, Brennan is one of the top guys. So Brennan specializes in housing market analysis, macroeconomic forecasting. He was actually named one of the most influential economists in BC by business in Vancouver. So this guy knows exactly what's going on. He knows all the answers to all the questions we have. But he's got a he's got a great <laughs> sense of humor because we have some wild questions. <laughs> yeah, no, he makes it fun, approachable, yeah. easy listen. Super great guy. So, man, I never thought in my life that I could talk to an economist and literally like just want to talk to him forever. Like yeah. it was like he makes economics fun and like yeah, can't wait to go home and do some math tonight. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, we'll dive into it. Enjoy, guys. All right, yeah, enjoy. Welcome to the uh, icebreaker. This segment of the show is brought to you by Taylor at Venture Mortgages. Come venture into the exciting world of mortgages. Hey, Brennan. Thank you for joining us today. Very honored to have you. Thank you. Honestly, very Great honored feature. to have you. Yeah, we feel like our pod has finally made her. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Now, the, oh, the guests you're going to get now that they see my name on that podcast. Oh, oh yes. You want to chase anyone, they're going to be contacting you. <laughs> um, you're the gatekeeper i love it <laughs> what we generally like to do to kind of you know uh introduce you to our listener is just tell us about your friday and we are recording this on a friday you know what's productive for you what gives you energy how do you lead into the weekend so most fridays you know a lot of what i do in my day-to-day job is like speaking engagements so going out and talking to different audiences usually you know people in the real estate sector, construction yep. sector, mortgage sector, or, you know, responding to media inquiries, like that stuff. Fridays are usually really quiet for those types of things. Yeah. So I like to take Friday mostly as like a research day so I can get caught up on you know, reading you know, academic papers or whatever that I'm interested in or, you know, playing around with some of our models and stuff and just sort of seeing any cool ideas can come out of that. Just generally kind of doing like economist tinkering kind of stuff. So that's a typical Friday. Every day I tend to start with treadmill, just walking my treadmill for about 45 minutes, I find is a nice way to start the day. Tons of coffee too, you know, usually about four cups of coffee Yeah. by noon. That kind of gets me in the right zone for doing the thrilling work of the economist. Are you trying to get the zone two workout on the treadmill? Is that kind of your goal or? I don't know what that is. You don't like cardio. I hate it. So the hack that I found is I'm not like a big gamer, but like I found like when I was younger, playing video games gets you into this like space time continuum where the time just like goes by. So my hack for cardio is got an Xbox set up where my treadmill is and I can just play, you know, whatever Madden or whatever. And it goes by so fast. So if you hate cardio, but maybe you enjoy playing video games, you take advantage of like, how video games tend to bend time. They just waste so much time. You get your cardio in and it doesn't feel like you've been there forever. Man, that's life hacking. I love that. Right? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, so try that if you don't like cardio. You can't run, though. 
you can't run. Yeah, it has to be a walking. But you know, you put your treadmill on like the highest incline and walk at a decent clip, and you'll burn a lot of calories. I just read that book, uh, Outlive: The Art of Longevity by Peter Atia. The whole book is talking about zone two cardio, which is like it's harder workout, but you can still talk. It's basically walking yeah. on a treadmill like that and playing video games. So like that's kind of the ideal. That's the way to do it. I'm gonna live. I'm gonna live forever. I guess. Yeah, basically, you're gonna get pretty. Yeah, yeah so we have to definitely go off your market predictions then if you're going to live so long. So mm. we'll be here to experience it. Yeah. Well, how did you become chief economist? Like, was that was that a goal when you were younger playing Xbox games? Like, was there a Nintendo game to be an economist? I'm going to have two old references for you and see if you get either. The first is it's like Highlander. You have to find an economist and cut off his head. And then you become, I didn't even like that movie, but you didn't get that reference. That updates and references. The other one is like as a kid, I was very into the show Family Ties, where the yeah. principal character played by Michael J. Fox was like really into investment banking at a young age. And then I got very into that. So I was like watching like Wall Street when I was like 12. So I was interested in finance and markets. I thought I wanted to maybe go into banking. Didn't thankfully do that. Got close and avoided it. Went to consulting. 2010, I started working BCRA and then was made chief economist while my boss retired and here we are nice so i went to grad school in the meantime and stuff but yeah yeah uh, the usual path but yeah very cool what's your primary role then like what's your job definition bcra we have a bunch of different departments like where we sort of act as like advocacy education and stuff for realtors so we're an industry association we're not a regulator we're not like you get something that's confused we don't do licensing or anything like that in our economics department we report stats and that kind of thing. We also will help our advocacy group. We kind of have, tend to have a bit of a firewall. I don't do lobbying work at all. That's on our government relations or advocacy side, but we can provide like research, kind of like a think tank would like, here's some big issues about housing supply or what's driving demand or what the impact of monetary policy might be on the housing market. Just kind of one-off research in addition to all like, you know, we make forecasts and, and report on like monthly stats and that kind of thing. Plus go out and do external kind of stakeholder events and media. What's kind of the most recent report right now that's interesting to you that you've done? It's one that we have coming out in a about 10 days where we're looking at like everyone, how much we can actually get done with supply reform. So CMHC just came out with a report about the gap that we know how much housing is needed in Canada and in BC. The number for BC is that there's a gap of about 610,000 units needed over and above what's expected by 2030. So over and above what's expected means about 900,000 or so units would need to be completed by 2030 to bring affordability back into like historical norms, which is like absurd because on average, we complete about 30,000 units per year. And to do 900,000 by 2030, you'd be about 130,000 completions a year. And also like with the interest rates, they're just not doing that. No, we're not going to get close. Paul Kirkman knows this great line about, you know, we talk about things that are sort of fantastical, like talking about, you know, that much construction is like debating the marching speed of hobbits. Because if you're just like talking about something that's like fantasy, right? Yeah. So there's no chance we're going to do that. So our report that's coming out is saying, well, what's like reasonable to expect? And we're comparing to what's happened in New Zealand. Every kind of housing nerd in the world is really focused on Auckland, New Zealand. So they did this big rezoning and it turned out they managed to keep rents flat from like 2016 to 2020. Whereas in other parts of New Zealand that didn't do that reform, rents were rising very quickly. So 
everyone's kind of looking at Auckland as like, oh, if we do that kind of upzoning and really increase supply, especially of like missing middle type housing, then we can have a real effects on affordability. So our study is sort of like, you know, if the BC homes for people plan that the province is set to roll out, if we can mimic the pretty big increase in construction that they saw in New Zealand or at least in Auckland, what can we expect to happen? And you know, it's not a great political slogan, but it's like the best we can probably do you know, compared to a baseline anyway, is like things would get worse slower and by 2030, maybe start to improve in terms of affordability. That's quite a long horizon for things to get better. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, like if we're building, you know, if we're set to complete maybe 30,000 units every year of the next couple of years to ramp that up, take some time permits, you know, just permitting on an apartment could take up to, you know, two years and then finishing the completion is like another two years. Cause that's really stretched yeah. out in the last decade. So just to get something built might be a four year process. So if you don't really start till 2026, all that stuff is not hitting the market for a very long time. Yeah. So time is really, really important here. And it's one of the things where the worst ad is sort of matching supply and demand. What about David Eby's like, Every lot, four to six units, like that must help a little, that kind of zoning. Yeah, that's the homes for, part of the homes for people yeah. plan, which is, I don't think, yeah, come up with a better name for it. But that's part of that plan is rezoning. I think yeah. in Vancouver's done some things like, you know, maybe you have six units on the single family lot. Yeah. But like a lot of it is not changing the FSR. So how much of the lot you can use, Yeah. which yeah. really limit what you can build and how effective that policy might be. We tend to do things where we start with a really good policy and then sometimes we like kneecap it with all of these extra kind of rules. It would probably be better if we just said, build what makes the most economic sense. So if land's really expensive close to the city, you're probably not gonna build a single family home on it. If it's not zoned that way, you're going to put in an apartment building or something, right? Yeah. That's what makes the most sense is kind of just getting out of the way. This, I guess, is second best where we change the zoning rules and hopefully for the better and hopefully it's enough of an incentive but the land is still really expensive so like victoria did some of this and the land is so expensive on a single family home it's like putting in a duplex or in a triplex sometimes doesn't make it economic what metric are they using for affordability like if we need to build 600 units what classifies as affordability so in the rest of the country cmhc used i think it's a ratio of mortgage payments plus kind of monthly costs to income of like 30% or slightly, maybe it's 35, I can't remember. For BC, it's 44%. In our model, it's slightly different because if we use a different income measure, but in our model, we're at like right now at, I think it's like the index would be like 60, 65% on its way to 75. And then getting that back down to like sub 40% would take, you know, expanding the housing stock by 20% in a decade, which it's not going to happen. So are they just calculating monthly mortgage payments then, essentially for affordability? Ours is like the Bank of Canada's Housing Affordability Index. So it's yeah, calculating your monthly mortgage payment. So you're taking into effect, you know, where current mortgage rates are, how much income's growing over time, and then home prices. Right. Can we just not lengthen amortizations by another 10 years and that fixes everything? So I've been on committees making recommendations to the federal government about how to change mortgage qualifying, either like by loosening the stress test or that's the one that always comes up is if you're gonna pass an 8% stress test, I don't really see why you can't allow the homeowner then to manage their cash flow however they want. 
including stretching their amortization. And it's just like a total non-starter with the federal government. I think in their mind, this means, you know, although it doesn't make a ton of sense because you're already qualifying at a high stress test rate, but they just don't want anything that adds to household debt in kind of a irresponsible way in their thinking. Right. So we're not going to build anywhere near enough units. So like supply and demand means prices are going up. The market right now seems like it's not falling. The market seems to be holding up pretty well. Like I was just kind of thinking this morning, like is there a chance that these interest rates that we're at just are indefinitely staying here? Because like the prices aren't going to come down and demand is still there. Like I guess the interest rates are not all dependent on housing, but imagine it's a big part of it. Yeah. So a good place to start in thinking about interest rates long-term is with the Bank of Canada and where yeah. they think interest rates should be long-term. So right now they're at 5%. In their own estimations, and these tend to change sometimes, but right now they think what's neutral for the economy, and that means the rate that gets inflation sustainably at 2% and where there's no excess capacity in the economy, the rate that where they think that happens, they're what they call their neutral rate, is between 2 and 3%. Okay. So we know that that rate's going to come down at some point because they think that the rate that's consistent with their target is between two and three percent. That's you know two or three hundred basis points lower than they are now. So they're unless they radically change their estimate of neutral, and that could happen. Some people think it maybe has bumped up a bit. Rates are going to come down significantly. Like what does that mean then for mortgage rates? So obviously pretty straightforward on the variable side. On the fixed rate side, it's a little bit more interesting. I think even if you get you know, 250 basis points of rate cuts from the Bank of Canada, yeah. it might only translate to 110 basis points on five-year fixed rates because yield curves are inverted. So the five-year bond yield's not going to fall a lot more, which drives mortgage rates, of course. So I've just been failing to explain this during presentations, even with pictures. So I'm going to try and do it in audio form with no chart. But if you think of like the five-year fixed rate as like, say like you have a recipe for building the five-year fixed mortgage rate yeah. and start with like, what's the neutral rate, real rate, add in inflation, add in the spread of a bond yields over the overnight rate, and then add in the premium for a five-year fixed rate over bond yields, right? If you start with a neutral rate, you can get kind of a neutral five-year fixed rate Right now, the spread on a five-year over the Bank of Canada overnight rate is negative. So it's got to be positive at some point, which neutralizes a lot of the Bank of Canada bringing rates down, but then that spread has to rise. So as a result, you know, maybe the long-term five-year fixed rate might be like between, say, 4.3 and 5.3. Right. So much higher than we've seen in the past, for sure, slightly lower than we're at now. Yeah, I think and everyone would be pretty comfortable with that. You know, like once we can get there, when we get there. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm going to throw out something kind of weird here, but does it really benefit the government to control inflation? And and here's my theory on it why is essentially to benefit off inflation, you need a massive amount of debt, right? Because obviously inflation is eroding that. So over time, like that debt's going to deplete. So the government holds the largest amount of debt out of obviously anybody, like trillions of dollars worth of debt. So is it not benefiting them during this time to kind of reduce that amount? And then the second part to that is, if we are in such an inflationary market, while people need raises to keep up with it, obviously that's not happening as fast as the actual inflation, but that's pushing everyone into a higher tax bracket, right? And the tax brackets aren't being increased, like in terms of, well, you know. Brackets are indexed over time though. Only for, for income taxes, they're indexed. Interestingly, not for property transfer right. tax. But that's what I mean, right? So if we're getting raises inherently because of 
inflation, we're going to end up paying more tax because the brackets aren't increasing. Impact brackets are indexed to inflation, so you don't. Otherwise, everyone would be paying the top marginal rate, you know, if they hadn't been, right? So they changed them, like... Oh, yeah. Yeah, they change it over time to index those brackets. Otherwise, everyone would, you know, if they were set 20 years ago, everyone would be paying a much, much higher rate by now. Okay. I didn't think they were going up at the same rate as inflation. Yeah, I can't remember how often there's a re-indexed, but maybe it's every couple of years. I don't know. You have to talk to someone who's looked at it recently. On the first one, government benefiting from inflation. I mean, there have been certainly times where Governments have run inflation pretty hot in order to sort of inflate away debt. I don't think that's what we're doing now. We built up all this debt in response to a crisis, you know, and even in, in Canada, it's really not, I think we're running a deficit of like 2% a year. Is that right? Instead of 2% of GDP, it's not very serious. It's much higher in the US where they did a lot more stimulus. I would say it's not their like motivation is not to inflate away their own debt. Households have a ton of debt too. Huge, huge amounts of debt as well. Hard to say they're really benefiting, I think, though, from inflation. Okay. With the GDP, so what we've been declining in GDP reports for, I think the fifth one just came out. When can we say we're in a recession? Are we in a recession? Here's the thing. So we've had positive GDP growth up until second quarter of this year, very slight contraction. We've had some monthly declines, but we measure the sort of rule of for a recession is two quarters of negative GDP growth. It's not necessarily how we define a recession. We've had times where we've had two quarters of negative GDP growth, but no decline in employment or an increased unemployment rate. It's pretty hard to say that you're in a recession unless an economy is shedding jobs or has a rise in unemployment rate. So right now we had one quarter of very slightly negative GDP growth. Unemployment rate is still very, very low. It's gone up very slightly, but it's still near all-time record lows. So I wouldn't say that we're in a recession until we start to really see it in the labor market. You know, even if we have like two quarters of like slightly negative GDP growth, if it's not hitting jobs, it's really, really hard to call it a recession. Or if it's not hitting like even consumption, it's still growing pretty strong. Hard to call someone a recession in that case. When we look at things like private domestic demand, which is just like household consumption plus business investment, it's weak, but it's not negative. A lot of what we're seeing dragging GDP lower is on the inventory side. So like if inventories are really accumulating, is that because sales are really slowing down or is it because businesses are ramping up production to uh, expectation of higher demand? It's really kind of hard to tell what the signal is from inventory. So they're really volatile. Until we see like the real core of the economy, like consumption and, and business investment really falling, it's kind of hard to say that we're experiencing a recession. Yeah. Okay. We're kind of getting that soft landing, maybe? Maybe. We're certainly in a better place than anyone expected at the start of the year. So I'm on the Ministry of Finance's BC, they have this forecast council where all of the chief economists from the banks and, and some other think tanks and stuff around Canada meet and we all give our forecast to the Minister of Finance and kind of talk about what we expect for the rest of the year and like meets every December. Everyone was really expecting growth to really slow down by now, certainly kind of second quarter was the general thought where we'd actually have some thought that the BC economy would actually contract this year and instead we're tracking at about one and a half percent growth so far this year. So it's slow, but it's much stronger than anyone expected, especially again, the labor market hasn't really felt any kind of a slowdown at all. In terms of rates then, do you feel that like 
Is the Bank of Canada just fixated on the inflation report or are they also taking into account GDP and everything like that? They're legally mandated. Their whole mandate for the Bank of Canada is to keep inflation at 2% over a medium term horizon, which generally means like two years. So that's their sole reason to exist, essentially, is to keep. Now, part of getting inflation 2%, though, is, you know, you have sort of indicators like GDP and like jobs, like the Fed in the U.S. has a dual mandate. So they're supposed to keep unemployment stable and low and inflation at a target. Bank of Canada only has an inflation target. But of course, like there's this idea that if you are at your inflation target, you're sort of also the economy's kind of operating at its capacity. So there's no excess demand or excess supply. It's sort of this divine coincidence where inflation target percent also is the best thing for stability in the economy. Inflation's like it's kind of interesting, right? Like has the inflation rate like been around eight percent when it was peaked? Peaked at 8% last year and said like April. I can't, yeah. It's funny to think about it because it goes up 8% and it's not like it comes down after that. So like, if we're just bringing down the inflation rate, we're just trying to make things less expensive, like less, just stop going up so fast, right? So like once we get back to 2%, I feel like not really an incentive for the interest rates to come down until we're at that 2% for quite a while. So all the wages can catch back up to where prices are. Right? Like, am I looking at that right? Or like, what do you think? Yeah, so I think there's sometimes a misunderstanding about what inflation measures. It measures the growth in prices, not the price level. So yeah. when prices go up, as inflation decelerates, the growth rate is coming down, but prices aren't. There are some prices that do fall, like gas prices fall yeah. all the time. Food prices fall all the time. That's why they get excluded sometimes from core yeah. inflation because they're really volatile. They go up and down. Yeah. But most prices are really sticky and don't come down. Which is why Bank of Canada really focuses on like the stickier part of the like core prices. We see a report where inflation's at two percent or even like one point eight percent. We're already up eight percent. So now that's really like what's interesting is even with the really high inflation we've seen over the past two years, if you just sort of drew a trend line of two percent inflation since banks started implementing its inflation target in like the mid nineties. Because they were actually below 2% for a really long time, like they actually had trouble hitting 2% for years. Oh, you kind of look at price levels, we're just kind of catching up and just slightly surpassing what would be a 2% trend, even with this most recent kind of inflation. So generally, I've been really good at targeting 2% inflation. On like timing, I have a really hard time seeing the Bank of Canada like unfurling a mission accomplished banner, you know, and lowering rates until we have inflation at 2% for like a sustained period of time. Unfortunately, that means probably like 2025, which means rate relief gets kind of pushed out. Unless, you know, could get really good news or, you know, bad news on the economy. But generally, like, we're somewhat stuck for the next year, especially since when you look at like those core measures of inflation, they have been just stuck or between three and 4% for a while. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's higher than the bank's target. And again, they're legally mandated to get it back to target. So crystal ball question, what do you think the next announcement in October, where are we going to go? I think no change. I think there's a risk that even the last two rate hikes were too much. I think one thing that's really keeping the economy afloat is there's just a massive buildup in savings that happened during the pandemic. For some households, not even close to all, but there are many households during the pandemic, like higher wage employment actually grew like 10 or 15% during the pandemic. 
was a lot of like frontline and like service sector jobs that were lost. But like, if you had a decent job that you could do from home, the pandemic and our job losses didn't really affect those jobs. So a lot of people with higher incomes, the pandemic acted kind of as a forced savings program. So at the same time as like, you know, you're say maybe earning the same amount of income as you were before, but you couldn't spend any money. All that went into savings. So by some estimates, the excess savings during the pandemic were like 250 to 350 billion, somewhere in that range. And when you look at savings rates the last few quarters, it hasn't really been drawn down. Like if you do a similar analysis for the United States, most of their excess savings has already been spent. Like it's been spent down over the past year. In Canada, we have a really weird savings rate. We were saving way below normal for many years before the pandemic. So depending on what you think the trend for efforts to household savings should be, we probably haven't even started to spend down all that savings. Like obviously some of it went into the housing market, wherever. But you know, there's still a huge shock absorber there. Once that starts getting spent down, and maybe it gets spent down quickly if we have some adverse economic shock, unemployment rate goes up, people are struggling to make their payments after really dipping those savings. It can get absorbed quickly, and then we have these fairly high interest rates at the same time. So I think I'm wary of tightening more. I think that the direction on inflation is sort of strong enough that they probably don't need to do more and can wait. And when we look at them, like GDP seems to be slowing. The most recent jobs report, you know, we have 40,000 jobs created in Canada is close to what we need just to keep the unemployment rate stable. So it's like replacement of labor force growth. She's like, okay, wage growth is still pretty high though. So there's a lot of mixed signals, but I don't think there's enough there to prompt them to continue tightening. Why do they make eight announcements a year? Like, do they have more? Should they have less? Like, if we give them more, is it going to be more volatile? Or because there's such a lead lag to it, but yeah. You know what? I've never looked into why it's eight. I really have no idea. I have no idea why to do it eight times. Do you think that's too much or too little? Like, it seems like. They don't complain like that's too many meetings. Yeah, I'm not complaining. I'm just curious. I think in times like these, maybe they could use. I'm going to Google that. I'm going to Google that as soon as I get off this. I don't know. <laughs> it's a really interesting, like, you know, it's curious. Like, why is it eight? Do they talk about doing it every month? Or maybe, like, you know, they take a break for the summer. I guess, like, not enough changes meeting to me, like, between meetings. I don't know. Because they have, like, a monetary policy yeah, report four times a year. So it's like really blown out. They update their forecast. They do a lot. Sometimes it's just the announcement. So they kind of have this like, here's our outlook for the economy and inflation. That's not going to change a lot month to month, but there might be fine tuning that is needed month to month. I would guess that that's probably the reason, but eight times yeah, ever. They ever just go like three weeks before and be like, just can't wait. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you guys like way too young to remember the financial crisis. And they did this during the pandemic too. Well, I guess I was, how old was I then? They did off, so if they're doing an off-meeting rate cut, like the world is ending. So they've done the, they're the financial crisis in 2008. And then also in the pandemic, they did like a full, so the 100 basis points in like February, March, 2020. Oh, wow. When they didn't have a meeting scheduled. Yeah. And it's really it's usually a cut then. I can't imagine they're going to go up by 100 basis points. That would be wild if they did an intra-meeting. It'd be funny, funny to think of a scenario where they're like, no, we're going to raise rates immediately. <laughs> like they don't get pandemic is like, or a financial crisis. It's like, well, this bank failed yesterday, so we have to do something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know what would cause them to just like massively raise rates. Yeah. And there's no like secret society of economists. Like you guys have no idea what they're going to say. It is wild. Like yeah. they really keep their cards close to their chest. Eh? 
you always think like, oh, there must be like a room somewhere where everyone knows everything. Yeah. Um, this isn't true. <laughs> it's like the, everyone's just getting it. Yeah. Like again, like I'm on the forecast council. It's full of some of the smartest people I've met. And like, you know, every year, like really good advice, really sound opinion. Like they're really detailed and data driven. And like, you know, even that group is really smart and we'll just get it wrong you know, pretty often. I don't know. Like there's no secret room where people know, no, uh, there's no one pulling the strings or anything. The sad truth is just a bunch of people trying to do their best. You know, that's funny. So looking back at the pandemic, like the interest rates were really low. The only thing people could spend money on during the pandemic was housing. It's like looking back, it was pretty obvious that we we're going to have this crazy. And crypto. It was housing and crypto or, yeah. or yeah. Like, like, yeah, I'm going to pay $300,000 for this JPEG. <laughs> And just hope everybody doesn't know what a screenshot is. Yes. Right. <laughs> oh, you do that? No, oh, no, I'm rude. <laughs> so were there people saying at the time, like, we need to start raising these rates now? Like, I feel like yeah, looking back, for sure. there was. Well, it's been more with hindsight, which is the easiest way to make policies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what I would have done last year. Yeah. When inflation was starting to peak, may recall, there was a lot of like people saying that inflation was transitory because it was like, you know, supply chains were really impaired. It just took yeah. way longer to move things around the globe. And those delays caused prices to really escalate. And you also had this real shift in demand towards, you know, if you couldn't spend on services, everyone was spending on goods. Yeah. So if you recall, like one of the best examples I can think of is maybe you had a gym membership that is, you know, a hundred dollars a month or whatever. And you can't use it, so you bought a Peloton. Yeah, I was going to say You didn't use that either, just collected laundry yeah. or something. Not you in the general sense. Yeah. Well, that means like that spending that you were doing on services now is like it's a spending on something that needs to be put together and put in a container and shipped from somewhere, right? Yeah. So all of that just massively, and think about that, all types of products, that massive shift in consumption, most like 66% or something of normal time consumption is on services and it, it sort of flipped. And now like two thirds of consumption was in goods yeah. and goods need to be put together and shipped. And that really saw that demand at the same time that supply chains were really impaired meant that like you just couldn't fill all those orders and delays and costs and everything else. So I thought it was like, once that's normal, prices will start to come down because all this like supply side shock. And then of course we got an invasion of Ukraine that's like yeah. oil price. There's a bunch of transitory things, but there's also, you know, we had an economy that was probably overstimulated for, you know, again, the amount that the supply side could catch up. Housing, of course, was getting very expensive for similar reasons, not nearly enough supply, lots of demand. And so there were things that were driving underlying inflation. So if you recall, like when inflation was starting to spike, there wasn't a ton of talk about raising rates because, you know, we also at start of 2022 had the Delta wave, which was yeah. like really severe and was shutting. So you had to add in like normally in like a bank of Canada is called the reaction function or how they change rates, you know, you know, related to economic variables. It doesn't usually include pandemics. And this time it's like, well, we start raising rates. What if we have this phase of the pandemic is so severe that everything shuts down again and then we got to backtrack. So it's easy to say like, oh, they should have started raising rates earlier. There was enough other things happening that maybe we would have shaved like a hundred basis points off inflation. It's also like a hundred basis point increase in the policy rate in most models has its peak impact on inflation about four to six quarters out. And the impact is about 30 basis points. So like monetary policy is really good for fine tuning inflation, 
it takes a pretty large increase to really have a major impact. Sorry, so that was a 100 basis point increase to decrease inflation by 30 basis point. About a year out. Yeah. Wow. wow. Is- yeah, if you think about it, inflation has like three components, like most macroeconomic small inflation. There's yeah. sort of an expectations component. So like what every household thinks inflation is going to be next year. That's why we have an inflation target is basically to manage those expectations. If like the Bank of Canada says prices are going to grow at 2% next year, you as a household or a business can then plan for the year ahead. You can plan ahead and think, oh, my prices might only be going up 2%. I can easily plan. So it's really important to keep those expectations anchored. The second part is like how the economy is doing. And that's really how like interest rates either slow down or speed up the economy. And there's like just shocks that are transitory. So during that inflation period, we probably had the economy being too stimulated by interest rates. We had expectations actually becoming kind of unanchored or unmoored from their 2% anchor. So like inflation expectations were like 6%. I think that's entirely driven by gas prices. You know, most people aren't thinking about inflation in terms of like some framework of the economy in their head and projecting. They're like, oh, in a hundred point font, gas is $2.30 a liter. And it just costs me like $20 for a steak at the grocery store. That's where their expectations come from. So as those prices come down, no surprise, expectations also tend to come down. Unfortunately, the Bank of Canada has no control over oil prices or gas prices. So it's really difficult for them to manage those expectations, except by being very aggressive. So those three things, like we had like expectations unmoored, we had probably an economy that's too stimulated by both fiscal and monetary policy, and we had all these shocks. So, you know, interest rates going up by 400 basis points, 450 basis points, whatever it was, 475 in the past year and a half probably lowers the inflation rate by like, you know, maybe one and a half percent total, 1.5 points. All those other things have to come under control too. Supply side is basically healed. Like supply chains are back to normal. We're not seeing that those like commodity prices are falling. So we're not seeing those major shocks. So that part's normal. It is trying to get the economy kind of excess demand eliminated. And then expectations are kind of work in progress. But it's kind of like, you know, the general framework for how to think about inflation. Do you feel the ratio is such a, like there's a 70 basis point spread there. You feel it's so wide just purely because we're kind of chasing our tail. Like we increase rates while we are increasing inflation, you know, like the bank of Canada can't really control that if it's in the calculation for inflation, right? Like, is there any way around that? Is there a solution for it? Yeah. This has been one of the really fun things for all economists over the past couple of years. Like you get really to know all the components of CPI and like how much. So like shelter is like 30% of CPI and it's about two thirds ownership housing. And then I think a third rental. And even that there's different, so like mortgage interest costs are about, geez, I think it's like 7% of CPI total, but they're going up really fast. They're gonna have really big impacts. Like gas prices are only 4% of CPI, but when they're going up by 50%, that's 2% inflation on its own, right? And that was happening. Same with mortgage costs right now, they're going up really fast and they're going up really fast because the Bank of Canada is raising rates. So it's really attractive and you see this a lot over the past two years to like, well, this is what inflation would be if we just took out all these other components. You don't have to do that necessarily with the Bank of Canada because what they really look at as a guide is what they call trim. So CPI trim or CPI median. And those measures of core inflation already toss out the parts of prices that are going up really fast. So if you look at CPI X mortgage costs, it's like 
two to two and a half percent the last couple months. But the calculation right now for median and trim, because the trim like, throws out the top 20 and bottom 20% of price increases. So if something's going up all really fast or down really fast, they just exclude it. And median is just like right in the middle of price growth. So those measures are already tossing out volatile things. And mortgage costs right now are one of the most volatile or going up the fastest. So if you look at median and trim, they're at like three and a half percent and they already exclude that. So it's an interesting thing, obviously, like, yes, they're driving inflation with their own rate hikes, but they know that and they have measures that kind of look at, you know, ways to exclude, you know, really volatile prices. Right. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, that is good to know. So like, what are your thoughts on the Kelowna real estate market over the rest of this year and I guess early next year? Yeah, I'm always surprised in the Okanagan at least the past like five years, like I'm not surprised because it's gorgeous, but it has gotten expensive really fast. <laughs> so obviously a lot of that, I think it was Toronto was the fastest growing city in Canada between 2016 and 2021. So the last census period, yeah. no surprise that prices have gone up a lot all across the Okanagan, but especially in Kelowna. I go there a few times a year for presentations and stuff. It's kind of like stuck in between, like it's a really fast growing city, but it's also traditionally a recreational market. And it's kind of stuck, like, do we build a whole bunch of apartments downtown? Or like for the longest time I would drive in and the tallest building would be like the Coast Hotel. You know, but there's not a lot of like really tall buildings. There's been more built, you know, in the yeah. last couple of years, but like yeah. it's young too. So that's the other thing. When you look at like the demographics, you think of the Okanagan as kind of gray, but a lot of the cities have demographic that's kind of bimodal, where there's a lot of people in their 30s and then a lot of people in their 60s, which for housing is about the worst thing that you can possibly have. Well, because like most 30-year-olds don't have anything to sell and most 60-year-olds, especially have moved to Kelowna, aren't selling. Like a lot of people, you know, seniors, especially retirees, moved to the Okanagan to stay there forever for the, for the rest of their lives. So you get no turnover in housing stock, right? So if you have like, you've got all these like 30-year-olds that are really young, all this demand, they don't have anything to sell. And you have a bunch of 60-year-olds who own homes and they're not selling. So you just get stuck with like in this really bad equilibrium of lots of demand and no supply of listings. So I think that's the biggest problem across the Okanagan right now is like that squeeze from demographics sort of like this way on prices. And as a result, like obviously Kelowna is going to continue to grow. And if it can't expand its housing supply, because it's not going to get there through listings because of those demographics, if it can't build a lot more and probably build up, it's going to be really tough to keep affordability contained, which is what you're already seeing. Like a lot of people have, you know, been priced out of Kelowna, so they're going to Penticton or they're yeah. you know, going even further into like the, you know, Kamloops or Kootenays, those sort of markets for retirees or for rec property. So it's yeah. tough. Like Kelowna has a ton going for it. That's why it's growing so fast. It's just it's going to have some really serious affordability issues. Yeah, yeah it already does. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of like, put on your pessimistic hat as an economist, like, worst <laughs> case scenario, could the market? collapse like any point like what would cause the market just to take a massive downturn the worst case scenario we thought of at the start of this year was a situation where we're in a recession and maybe it's even worse than we thought so the unemployment rate will be rising very quickly and at the same time that households are you know getting renewed on their mortgages or their variable rate was going up really fast so we got one part of that 
variable rates went up really fast. And people that are renewing right now, especially if they got a rate five years ago, are renewing to a very high rate. But the labor market hasn't really softened at all. So under that scenario, we thought we'd have a you know, we'd have a flood of listings activity. And if prices were falling, you might get defaults too. So you get this like really fire sale inventory. That's what we saw in the financial crisis, where active listings in BC in 2007 to kind of mid to late 2008 went from 25,000 to 55,000. I want to say. So a huge Whoa. spike in inventory. And a lot of that was like people trying to get out of homes very quickly. And then a lot of that too is in that climate where we had a you know a massive housing bubble in the United States. So anything with real estate was already going to have like that stigma tied to it and people yeah. were just like, you know, trying to get out. But that's the scenario where I could see a real problem. Sort of issue that puts a floor under prices, especially is just there's so much demand for two reasons. One is demographics. In the next I think five to 10 years, BC will have more people in their 30s than at any time in the past 50 years. So all of those millennials, you two included, I'm guessing, are in their household forming years. So like that generation now is not, you know, living in their parents' basements generally, no shade if you are, <laughs> out wanting to like buy a home or rent something, right? So we have all this housing demand and it's not going anywhere. So that's one, like the demographics were already really unfavorable, like in the Kelowna example, where you have a lot of 30-year-olds and 60-year-olds. And then on top of that, we have pretty massive population growth because we changed our targets for permanent residents to, you know, 500,000 people a year. So we're, which is, you know, necessary. Maybe I'd be quibble with the amount, but we certainly need a lot of immigration because our labor force growth is very slow or would be very slow without it. But it adds instantly to housing demand because when people come here, they need a place to stay. We have a massive supply problem. So those two things in combination just mean there's sort of this like relentless bid for housing. And that really puts a floor under prices because demand is so high. Add in the fact that we have a real trouble expanding supply. And we get, you know, even in like a situation now where like in the Okanagan, sales are like not great. I mean, I think they're like still about 15% below normal for the time of year. And yet prices are holding up really well. Yeah, they are. Normally, like if you had decent amounts of supply and sales were as low as they are, prices would be softening. But because our supply situation is so bad on the listing side, even like pretty weak demand can put pressure on prices. Do you think we're kind of like through the thick of it? Are we at the bottom of the market in terms of obviously it's a simplified supply and demand. If there were a fire sale, people are on the sidelines ready to buy. More people are immigrating. Yeah. If you were an investor, would you buy? Yeah. No, especially like I've got teenage boys that will need homes at some point because I don't want them to live with me forever. I don't know if you've been a teenage boy recently. I know they'll get older, but like it's not awesome. <laughs> um, and so, like, there's a lot of people in my age group, especially that are doing that, that are just buying apartments or buying whatever their kids will eventually be in. There is that kind of investor demand. Rents are crazy high. I think rents in Kelowna from the pandemic went up by $1,000 a month. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not sure. you know, with high rates, I don't know if you're still cash flow negative or not on that, but like still. And then price appreciation, even in that CMHC report, their baseline price growth over the next 10 years is something like 79%. Wow. The so low end like, on that was like 60 yeah, you know, when you think about how things compound, like right now, the average price in BC is close to a million dollars. 
Yeah. In the Okanagan real estate board area, it's like 750 or something. But like yeah. compounding, even at like 5% historical growth means you get prices rising really fast. If really it's you fast. know 6%, prices double in 12 years. Yeah. So 12 years, it goes by really fast. We can't have prices grow that fast, especially, you know, that means average price goes from a million dollars to $2 million in 12 years, which is shocking. But like historical price growth in BC is like six and a half percent a year, right? So, you know, the best we can do is like really cut that price growth down to like something like two and a half to three percent incomes try and catch up. Like what about the effect of people that don't have mortgages? Like they're kind of obviously pretty insulated from the interest rates. Like, I don't know if you know the stats on this, but it's people that don't have mortgages. Is that number growing or is it the same? I was actually looking at that this week. So in 2021, it was about 42, 43% of owner households didn't have a mortgage. Don't have a mortgage. 40. Um, in 1991, it was 48%. It's actually come down. Interesting. Uh, like what am I things I've been thinking about is maybe we're seeing less interest rate sensitivity because maybe there's a higher share of households without a mortgage. In Vancouver, it's like 50%. In BC, it's like 45% as a whole, I think. So it's a little higher than Canada. But still, it's lower than I thought it was. It has gone up a bit over the last couple of years, but I thought it'd be a lot different. I thought maybe it would be a lot higher than, say, pre-financial crisis, and maybe that's why we were more yeah. interest rate sensitive yeah. then. Yeah. But the thing that is kind of interesting it still does mean there's like 40, almost 50% of households that aren't interest rate sensitive at all, yeah. which is something. But also like 55%, I think, of homeowners in BC have been in their home for at least 10 years. And in the last 10 years, home prices have doubled. Yeah. So even if you have a mortgage, it's you have an enormous, enormous amount of equity. Yeah. Right. This so is- you have this huge shock absorber. Like you're just not that vulnerable. Like, so if the home prices fall 10%, okay, well, they've gone up by 100% over the past. That money, I just you know. was told by the news that it went up that much a couple of years ago. So now it's down, like, really, who cares for most people? Right, right. right. And if you have a small mortgage, like, and there's a lot of those households, they're not like getting up in the morning and watching the Bank of Canada's announcement at 7 a.m. to like, oh, I hope my payments don't go up. Like, it's not a factor. No, I know. Yeah. And like, there are a lot of reports about like how much money you'd have to have to buy an average home, but it's just so misleading because it's like first time home buyer is not buying an average price house. Like you buy an entry level house, right? So like you put his minimum down payment on a one and a half million dollar house in Vancouver, or like a million in Kelowna. You don't start there. You just get in the market. It goes up six and a half percent a year. You build up the equity and then you move. And then when you think about how the interest rates affect the economy at whole, like when our jobs are still good and we have these high interest rates, it's only affecting the people that just bought at entry level mortgages, like in the last couple of years. Yeah. So it's really tough for young people, especially they don't oh, exactly. have, you know, more and more, obviously people are clearing the hurdle of the down payment, which is pretty onerous, especially in the yeah. market by intergenerational transfer from parents or grandparents. Like if you're lucky enough that your parents or grandparents like you enough to give you a hundred thousand dollars, that's a real benefit to get in the market. And then, you know, even then if you're young and you have a qualified 8%, like yeah, it's still hard, but it does also mean there's a lot of people, if you've owned a home for the past 10 years, your like lateral move isn't as big of a hurdle. You've got a huge amount of equity that you've either built up through your payments or that you've earned as home prices go up. So your move to the next property isn't that big of a deal. There's a lot of demand for like lateral moves from moving up. Kind of goes back to a pet theory that try to isolate the exact years where it's like only good year to be born was like 
somewhere between like 1955 and 1965. <laughs> it applies more in like the United States. It was like in, in the U.S. especially, like it was like you can avoid fighting any wars. Homes were pretty affordable. College was really affordable. You got to enjoy 25-year secular downturn in interest rates, so that asset prices exploded. And then right as you retire, interest rates go back up so that you can have risk <laughs> massive accumulation of assets. So it's not like perfect year to be born. That was the only good year. And also, if you're like into like music and movies, like if you were like around in your early 30s, maybe in university in the 90s, where like I, as a Gen Xer, think that movies and music peaked, that would be a perfect, absolute perfect time. Obviously, tons of other problems, like the world struck for a lot of people over those decades. Yep. The theory needs refining, for sure. Uh, but if you were like a certain person, then there was like a perfect time to be born, for sure. That's funny. <laughs> um, to go back a second there, like you guys were both talking about first-time homebuyer, getting in the market and getting the down payment, which is, you know, a huge task. Why in BC and Ontario have property transfer tax? Like, because that person's saving up, they're trying to get that down payment. And like in our markets, that's a huge down payment. And then you get hit with this massive property transfer tax. Like, where's that yeah. money going? Why is BC different yeah. than next door? Like, that's a fantastic question that we've brought up with the government for the past, I don't know, decades. So it started as a wealth tax in 1986 or 1987, the social credit party brought it in, no longer exists. It was kind of a right-wing party that brought in a wealth tax that was only supposed to apply to 5% of real estate transactions. They never indexed the thresholds. So the original, it was a 2% threshold after $200,000. They never indexed it. So now every transaction gets hit with the highest part of the property transfer tax. We've made the argument many, many times with fully costed analysis about how much you know, loss in government revenue would take. You just raise that threshold index to inflation and you know, governments just like revenue. So once they have it, they don't give it back, even though at this point, it's like two to $3 billion a year. But what they're doing with it, it's certainly not using it to fix affordability in any way. I imagine it's just become general revenue and it goes towards like things that are really useful, healthcare, education, all those kinds of things. But it does have an impact. And we did an analysis when I first started, I think, in 2010, 2011, about like the impact on the economy, on like spending. Because for that time, each household was not be able to spend $6,000 because they had to pay a PTT. Like what could they have done with that instead? And how could that have affected the economy? Never convinced anybody that we should get rid of the PTT or even make it less onerous. In fact, they've actually just made it worse by not indexing it and then adding other levels to it. Past like, a, was it a million or whatever it is? For, there's like three tiers now. Yeah, plus the foreign virus tax. Past 2 million and then past 3 million. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. We got to be conscious of your time, obviously, here. Yeah, we'll wrap it up with some questions, but we'd love to have cool. you back on. But yeah, we'll we'll dive into these if you got a couple more minutes. Do it. Time for everyone's favorite part of the show, the ice maker section. Brought to you by myself, Matt Glenn. If you could purchase a property in the Okanagan in the next year, what would it be? Uh, you ever watch like an action movie where they go to find someone who like, you're the best in the business. We need you back. And it's like, it's always some isolated cabin because he doesn't want to be around. He's done chilling. He doesn't want to be around people. That's what I would like. So in the Okanagan, like on a lake with nobody around. But I also am not like a self-sufficient person and I don't <laughs> like wildlife. So I don't know. Uber Eats has to make it there. Yeah, we just have to make it there. And I don't want to be there anywhere near me. 
So if that exists, that's what I would buy. <laughs> I love it. That's perfect. What's the best thing you've ever spent money on? You can see behind me, I only buy books. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. Uh, books and food. So I don't know. Sandwich? I don't know. Steak and then a book. Pretty boring. Like we went to Hawaii in the summer. That's always yeah. fun. That's expensive, but it's fantastic. But yeah. Where about some Hawaii to go? Fun story. We were supposed to go to Maui four days oh. after the fires. So we had to scramble because like, you know, obviously the government there was saying, don't come here. And yeah. if you are here, then leave. So we, we were able to change our plans and go to Oahu in the North Shore a few times. It's fantastic. So it was so horrible what happened in Maui. See, even then, it was still tough to like, you don't want to have like too good of a time because everyone's yeah. pretty bummed out, obviously. But yeah, it was very relaxing. It's I think they want people to go there next year, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, they have to. And in Maui, I think tourism is like 70% of their economy or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to make a trip there. It's beautiful. Uh, yeah, go spend about as much money as you can there. They need it. Definitely. Yeah. What's the best book or quote? I mean, considering all the books behind you, excited for this. <laughs> yeah. I think the one that I can't remember the exact quote, it's a Milan Kundera quote is a Czech author, but like, it's about like, uh, sort of the goal in life is to treat questions to like the most serious way and in the lightness of form. So like, you know, if you're in my job, like economics can be serious and can be boring. Like we do a very serious analysis, but I try to keep it pretty light and fun as I can, otherwise it can get kind of dry. Yeah, so my lifetime ambition is to unite the utmost seriousness of question with the utmost lightness of form. The perfect way to treat, you know, obviously I don't take myself or much too seriously, but I do take, you know, our work seriously. That's awesome. Honestly, you're a good messenger for this because I could talk to you about economics all day long. So you've got that nailed. I try. I mean, it's yeah. a, big, I mean, a big part of like this job is communicating some stuff that can be pretty dry or pretty technical and not everyone... Yeah. Obviously, most people haven't cracked a macro textbook in a long time, if ever. So even if they have, maybe it's like a you know PTSD from some 9 a.m. class they took. So yeah, try and make it fun. I find most economics presentations really boring, so I try to make it fun, even just for myself. Yeah, it, oh, you it's got to be a stressful job, though. Hey, like, you know, if a client tells me like, oh, you gave me bad advice. You told me rates were going to do this. At least I have somebody to blame. I can say, well, the economists are telling me to do this. What are you doing? My favorite example is like most times when you ask an economist, we're going to have a recession. They're like, oh, the 40% chance. Because it's like, it's high enough that it's like a probability. But if it doesn't happen, you're like, well, I wasn't my forecast which is a very high probability. That's why there's always like, well, on this hand, on that hand, on the other hand, never just never really commit to anything yeah right. perfect i feel like you're kind of like brain man like counting cards you got to know exactly where to put your money and you're just cashing in on this then every good real estate decision i've made in my life was made by my wife and usually with me arguing like the opposite, <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> that's <laughs> funny well it's been awesome having you on brendan anything our listeners can do to help you out at all uh, no, if you're just interested, you can, you can find all of our stuff on our website, bcra.bc.ca, and yeah. find the economics part. And all the stuff we write that we put out every month is there. And if you're into that, then check it out. I'm not on any social media except for like LinkedIn, where I might put some stuff up every once in a while if you're interested. So that's it. Yeah, you have some yeah. awesome stuff up there. I was scrolling through. Yeah, it's never boring, but like right now, especially there's a lot of focus on some of the issues we've been highlighting for a very long time. So it's nice to see everyone catching up. Nice. Yeah. Well, yeah, thanks again so much. We're, uh, we'll look forward to having you back on. Definitely. My pleasure. Anytime. Super fun. 
Thanks for listening to the Kelowna Real Estate Podcast. Be sure to reach out and let us know how else we can add value to your Kelowna real estate journey. Please show some support by hitting the like, share, and subscribe button. This is sponsored by Matt Glenn Real Estate and Taylor Adventure Mortgages.